Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire. Tell me, what do you know about voodoo? What do you really know? How much of your knowledge has been informed by Hollywood films? The modern interpretation of voodoo, the pin-stuffed dolls and grease-gree amulets, has its roots in 1920s and 1930s film and magazine. White Zombie, a horror film from 1932, is not only the first major zombie horror film, but also features a portrayal of voodoo that is less than positive. Um, Haiti, land of the voodoo, comes the most infamous cult of all, Bela Lugosi as Murder Legendre. I see death. Master of the undead damned, the sinister power behind the white zombie. Bela Lugosi wasn't exactly subtle in his portrayal of the monstrous Haitian voodoo priest who leads a pack of zombies. The North American branch of Louisiana-based voodoo and hoodoo came from a fusion of disparate religious beliefs. Enslaved, who were brought to French Louisiana, were forced to worship Christianity. But you can never truly force a belief system. Many of the enslaved hid their beliefs behind Catholic iconography, the result being an amalgamation of Catholicism and African-based voodoo. Voodoo has its roots in West Africa. Its supreme being is called Bondi. There are other deities as well, known as Elwa. When you finish this episode, I encourage you to seek out information on voodoo yourself. It has a fascinating history. Voodoo can be a difficult subject to wrap your head around, a topic that we could create an entire podcast devoted to the subject. Now, just because the portrayal has voodoo hasn't always been accurate, doesn't mean there aren't those who have used inaccurate portrayals as a muse for their evil deeds. In today's episode, we explore such crimes. Crimes with an air of mystery due to the obvious voodoo influence connected to them. With that said, let's get on with it. In the 1970s, Milton, Delaware had a population of only 1,500. In such a small town, the Draper King Cole Cannery carried a mystique. The cannery, as described in the papers at the time, used migrant laborers from the South and Southwest. Many of the migrant workers celebrated voodoo. A Milton woman interviewed at the time genuinely believed that voodoo carried with it certain powers. She would travel from her comfortable suburb to the migrant clusters outside of Draper King Cole and buy bags of powers and potions. 
November 27, 1974. Frank Snyder, aged 55, ran a gas station and grocery store. On the 27th, he was the targeted victim of a robbery, but fought off his assailant and won. He chased the man who threatened his life and planted a clean kick to the attempted robber's backside. Frank Snyder didn't realize that this action sealed his fate. On November 29th, just two days later, Frank is found in the bathtub at the back of his gas station with his face wrapped in towels. He was stabbed 18 to 24 times. Investigators described the smell as unreal, said that there were flies everywhere. Those on the scene described the murder as horrifying, only able to investigate for minutes at a time. The knife was found still lodged in Frank's body. The handle wrapped in multicolored towels with window shade cords used as binding for grip. This blade of the knife bent from the force of the stabbing. Frank had been held down by multiple assailants, leaving him incapable of defending himself. The station vandalized. $100 was stolen from the cash register. Days after the murder, two men in Milton, Ricky Tolson and Charlie Barrows, were heard bragging about knowing who committed what was being called the voodoo murder. The name uttered off their lips was John Preston Rooks. It wasn't long after the two braggarts mentioned Black Jesus as the killer in the Frank Snyder case that the two became victims themselves. Coincidence, I'm sure. John Preston Rooks drove to Delaware from Alabama in his black Cadillac. Gold stick-on letters were pressed to the vehicle that read Black Jesus. A horrible, scary man or not, driving a car like that carries a certain amount of swagger. The nickname Black Jesus has never been explained, nor will it ever. It serves as another piece of the mystery that surrounds John Rooks. At some point, Rooks worked as a truck driver. Then, it just seemed he had money, the type of guy who had his hands in everything. It was said Rooks was the kind of man who could never lose in cards and dice. One day, a challenger walked into the bar most frequented by Black Jesus. Nathan Rogers heard the legend of the man that couldn't lose. He put John Preston Rooks to the test. Imagine the stunned silence in the room when Rogers stomped away the victor. Most of Nathan Rogers was found in the branches of the Misbillion River. He was brutally murdered with an axe. They say pieces of Rogers washed up for months. Everyone knows who murdered him. But the case remains unsolved to this day. Ricky Tolson was crushed in a hit and run. There were no witnesses. Charlie Burroughs sat on the hood of his car telling anyone within earshot the story of Black Jesus and the Frank Snyder slaying. He was handed an open beer, and after taking a long pull of his newly acquired adult beverage, he began vomiting blood. He struggled but made it in his car, I assumed to get medical aid, but died in the driver's seat. Hands on the wheel, foaming at the mouth. No cause of death could be determined. It's not hard to understand, then, why George Lee Reynolds hesitated when he was questioned shortly after the Frank Snyder slaying. A statement was given that implicated Rooks in the murder, but didn't provide much in the way of detail. When Reynolds was initially questioned, he wasn't a suspect. But when John Preston Rooks' name was mentioned in passing, Reynolds became agitated. Suddenly, he went from openly talking with investigators to avoiding answering questions. Reynolds was brought to a police station where it was discovered that he had a pending robbery charge of his own. After a call placed to the attorney general, 
a deal was made. The robbery charge would be dropped, and a $2,000 reward, if enough information was given that would lead to the arrest and conviction of John Preston Rooks. Reynolds mulled this over. It's hard to imagine the pressure he felt in this situation. $2,000 is a lot of money, especially in the 70s, just over 10000 when you account for inflation. Dropping his robbery charge only sweetened the pot, but it was clear John Preston Rooks was not a man to be trifled with. Nothing had ever been proven against him. Every charge seemed to slide off Black Jesus like Teflon, every snitch dead. It was known around town that when you crossed Black Jesus, you died, and not well. Reynolds told the investigators that he would have to think it over. A few days after leaving the police station, Reynolds was arrested on default of bond and transported to the Sussex Correctional Institution. The newspapers at the time didn't draw attention to the suspicious timing of the arrest or the fact that he was greeted by investigators. Draw your own conclusions. Detective Perry, lead investigator on the case, again pressured Reynolds to talk. In an act of defiance, Reynolds spat, I don't want to be no snitcher, and refused to speak to anyone. To stray from being objective for a moment, I don't even know who to root for in this one. I can't say I agree with the methods employed to force cooperation from Reynolds. I won't even get into the amount of racism a guy like Reynolds saw in small-town life in the 70s. That much money and luck doesn't just fall in your lap. Yet he still turned it down. Then they tried to entrap this guy into speaking up, but you can understand where the investigators are coming from as well. There is a man haunting the streets and leaving bodies in his wake. Someone treated with the reverence of a demon. You are losing your town to this guy. Obviously, they want to stop him. I can see the frustration. After some heated discussion, the police were on their way. Detective Perry left his card and indicated to Reynolds that if he still wanted that deal, he should call him. According to Detective Perry, it wasn't long after that Reynolds sent word that he was willing to cooperate. Reynolds denied ever sending such word, and after some time alone in an interrogation room, Reynolds agreed. Suddenly became cooperative. You can imagine what went down in that interrogation room. Reynolds agreed to give a statement, but asked that his mother and father be present. A trial was held, but according to Reynolds, he was forced into making the statements given to him by detectives. The only thing written in the official statement that he would stand by in the trial was that he indicated that he was in the back seat of the car involved in the murder. George L. Reynolds and Thomas R. Young were convicted of the murders because in their statements they placed themselves in the vehicle and at the scene. But the judge concluded that it was clear that the statement made by Reynolds was induced by detectives and ruled the statement involuntary and inadmissible since this was the only evidence that placed John Preston Rooks at the scene of the crime, he could not be convicted. And just like that, Black Jesus walked out of the courthouse a free man. Investigators went back to work, attempting to build an actual case this time. It seems that they flew too close to the sun. Rooks walking free only thickened the mystique that surrounded the man. When investigators questioned locals, they were not willing to cooperate. Word around town was that Black Jesus was a hoodoo master. They told detectives he had full control of the route. Investigators were desperate. They reached out to anyone with even a tenuous connection to the area surrounding Draper King Cole. At his appeal, Thomas R. Young brought a Bible with him. Some say to protect him from a hex. 
Young claimed the jury made a mistake, that when the verdict was read, a thunderclap could be heard outside of the courthouse. In tears, he told the Court of Appeals that it had been a message from God. At George L. Reynolds' appeal, he told the court that he didn't enter the station with Young or Rooks. He explained that Rooks was the ringleader and that he was terrified of him, that Rooks dealt in voodoo, that he had powers he had seen used with his own eyes. Neither man won his appeal. Burke, the prosecutor on the case, said that the case affected him. In an interview, he stated that not long after the trial, he developed diarrhea so severe that he had to be hospitalized. Before catching himself, he told the press that he often speculated that a hex was placed on the judge that let Rooks walk free, but then added, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that's what happened. As far as how building a second case went, not well. Why? Well, you can't build a case against a man who disappears off the face of the earth, can you? Authorities lost track of John Preston Rooks and his whereabouts are unknown to this day. He simply was gone, black Cadillac and all. In fact, you can't even find a picture of the guy. His existence on this earth like a specter of death to those that knew him. Fear itself grasping a small town. I like to imagine John Preston Rooks in that big black Cadillac with the gold press on letters driving from town to town, scaring the locals, winning in dice, any card game they threw at him, then driving away from the havoc in his wake, moving on to the next town, always another dice game, another gas station, another river. One thing is for sure, if you come across a man named Black Jesus in a hole-in-the-wall bar somewhere, and he challenges you to a game of cards, maybe decline, or at least let him win. While fascinating the case of John Preston Rooks isn't our last stop on exploring the influence of voodoo in crime, in 1910, Haitian Germans controlled 80% of Haiti's international commerce, which is unbelievably disproportionate considering Haitian Germans accounted for about only 200 people. The Germans and the French competed over control of Haiti's national bank. You can imagine the economic situation many Haitians found themselves in couldn't lead to easy access to health care. The German control of commerce explains why in 1910, an inspector of police brought a full report of his morbid findings to German authorities. In the inspector's report, he describes the events surrounding a woman named Esteus Liberis, a high priestess who likely worshipped Dambala. Dambala, often represented by the image of St. Patrick, is considered the creator of the universe in voodoo. The myth states, Long ago, the serpent spirit Dambala created the world. Dambala used his 7,000 coils to form the stars and the planets in the heavens and to shape the hills and valleys on earth. By shedding the serpent skin, Dambala created all the waters on the earth. And when the sun showed through mist settling on the plants and trees, a rainbow was born. Her name was Aida Wedo. Dambala loved her and made her his wife. They are still together today, the serpent and the rainbow. In his report, the police inspector stated that some level of misfortune had befallen Isaias Liberis and her group. To ward off the misfortune, she and a man named Conzo Pele sought out a child sacrifice. They chose the niece of Pele and, together with the group, formed a plan. They first convinced the girl's mother to leave the home, enticing her in some way, then kidnapping the girl. When the mother returned, they explained that the high priestess had called on the girl and she would be back. The mother's fears quickly faded into relief. 
it was considered a great honor to be called on by the high priestess. At the ceremony, the girl was placed on the altar. Her uncle strangled her to death. They decapitated her and her blood was collected in a bowl. Those present at the ceremony drank from the now full bowl. The girl was then stripped of her flesh and the flesh was then cooked at her uncle's house. After the flesh was cooked, he then preserved it. Two girls were spotted watching the flesh being roasted, which was considered an affront to their god. The two were sacrificed for the offense. The inspector of police described his findings in the report saying, In her house I found a barrel containing pickled human flesh, the remains of a child aged about twelve. The last remaining source printed on Estes Liberis stated that she was transported to the capital and awaiting trial for being directly responsible for the killing and eating of at least five children. The use of voodoo as a remedy for misfortune hasn't ceased. Those who find faith in voodoo often turn to the religion as a remedy. In 2018, an article published by Public Radio International states, In a country where quality health care services remain out of reach for a large portion of the population, religious and traditional practices have merged with medicine. Voodoo is widely known for this hybrid form of care. Some locals say that voodoo succeeds where modern medicine can't. The article goes on to explain that Haiti's health sector is underfunded, even when compared with other developing low-income countries. It's worth noting that many natural diseases have the same symptoms described in the supernatural world, and that in some Haitian communities there are those who are hired to tell the difference between a natural and supernatural disease. This isn't an uncommon occurrence and not localized to Haiti. A quick internet search will return countless results of attempts made to right perceived wrongs and cure illness with voodoo. As always, there still exists a dark side. Some voodoo priests practicing in Haiti found themselves the victim of an angry mob. With the belief that their rituals can cure disease, also comes the belief they can cause them. In 2010, during a cholera outbreak that claimed 8,534 lives, Hadians began blaming the priests for the disease. They believed it was a hex placed on the country. At least 45 voodoo priests were lynched, burned alive, or hacked to death with a machete. And then, there are those that would use voodoo in an attempt to gain fortune at any cost. Sometime in early 2018, Latarsha L. Sanders arrived at her mother's house obviously distressed. According to her mother, she was ranting and raving. Before she left, she vowed that she would obtain a human heart to save her dying father. This wasn't an uncommon occurrence. The Sanders family had grown used to Latarsha ranting. Over the years, she had grown obsessed with the Illuminati, numerology, and voodoo sacrifices. Shortly after the visit, on February 5th, 2018, Latarsha's neighbor received a knock on her apartment door. When the emergency personnel arrived, Latarsha was unusually combative uncooperative. The neighbors informed the authorities that Latarsha was acting unusual and that she had children in her apartment. The police agreed they should perform a welfare check, and what they found would horrify investigators and rock the community. Sanders murdered her eight-year-old son, Edson Brito, and her five-year-old son, Layson Brito. Sometime within 48 hours of February 5th, the ritualistic killings were performed. The seven-year-old sister of the two young victims stood with extended family on the Prospect Street porch, and she says the woman 
who says she did this is not the mother she knows. We saw a community embracing out here on Prospect Street in Brockton, a community basically in shock. There has been nothing but extreme grief, with, and the vigil is an attempt to support one another. There was a resounding message, if you know someone with a problem, with a psychiatric issue, with behavioral problems, seek help for them now. Eight-year-old Edson Marlo Brito and five-year-old Layson were allegedly stabbed to death by their mother, 43-year-old Latarsha Sander. The mother was arrested Monday. I don't know. I can't think of anything that would drive a mom to do that to the kids, you know. Was just there horrible. any signs of problems? No signs, you know, nothing at all. My brother said there were no signs at all, you know. This VO2. In court papers, it says the mother admitted she killed the boys with a kitchen knife as part of a voodoo ritual. The mayor was among the speakers out here at Prospect Street in Brockton saying that they pledged to continue to support the family. And people have continued to gather around the flowers and the balloons. Outside of the home, the boys found up on the third floor. It's still unclear exactly when they were killed. It's believed to be over the last weekend. Live in Brockton, Rondella Richardson, WCVB News Center 5. Eight years old Edson Brito was stabbed somewhere between 50 to 76 times. Five-year-old Lason Brito was stabbed around 23 times. MassLive.com reports, Sanders cleaned up the children placed them in beds, and mopped up the crime scene, Cruz said in his statement. She never sought medical attention for the boys. Massachusetts State Police located a kitchen knife left in the sink that was determined to be the murder weapon. And the boys, for as injured as they were, um, had very little um, blood on them. It appeared as though their clothes had been changed. They were wrapped in clean sheets and placed in separate beds. And there's a theory um, that the Illuminati involves some famous people in, in the world and that they can sacrifice a person or a human for their own success. And her family was aware of that, but she never discussed actually doing these things. But also on the, this list, there's a reference to opening GoFundMe accounts for everyone in the family with a notation that the best story gets the best money. There's also an indication that she wanted to open a P.O. box so that she could, quote, receive fan mail. Sanders made statements to investigators that the killings were part of a ritualistic incident. Speaking with Latarsha's mother, Erlaine, she said her daughter refused mental health treatment after becoming obsessed with numerology, rituals, and the Illuminati. The goal of the ritual was to find fame and fortune. Notebooks were found in the apartment with lists of goals and items Latarsha wanted to obtain, from a GoFundMe account to opening a P.O. box for gifts. While being held without bail, having an unquenched thirst for fame, she has called family members asking for them to speak out on her behalf. When asked about the motivation for the ritual by investigators, Latarsha simply responded, Voodoo stuff. There has been a question of her sanity, but prosecutors have pointed to Latarsha attempting mop up the blood, clean the children, and blame the father as an act of self-preservation. On an infuriating note, this could have all been prevented. Latarsha was reported to DCF twice not long before the murders. From 2016 to 2017, 76 children have died under DCF supervision. It doesn't seem to me that the DCF is effective in protecting children at risk, though I sympathize with those in that line of work. I imagine they are underfunded, and I can't imagine what they see in a single work week. To add to the already morbid history surrounding the family Edson Brito, 
the father of Edson and Layson Brito, was charged three times for domestic violence and in 2014 was accused of physically assaulting Latarsha. The pain of the father, the sisters, the brothers, aunts, uncles, grandmother of Lasan and Marlon, that pain falls on their hearts every day, and, and that's a life sentence for them. Two life sentences for Latarsha Sanders, the Brockton mother convicted of stabbing her two sons to death, telling investigators at the time that the killings were part of a voodoo ritual. The two little boys are gone forever, and nothing that we do here is going to change that. Autopsy showed that eight-year-old Edson Brito and five-year-old Lasan Brito were stabbed 80 and 20 times back in February 2018, with a jury nearly five years later finding Sanders guilty of two counts of first-degree murder and one count of witness intimidation, leaving the boy's father and Sanders' family at odds over a potential punishment. Uh, the father of the children has indicated uh, that he, again, does not wish to be heard, uh, but is in favor of the outcome and is understanding of what that sentence uh, requires. The family has been totally and completely supportive of Ms. Sanders because they have recognized from day one that she was insane at the time that she killed her two children. Along with the two life sentences, Sanders also received a 9-10 to 10 year conviction for the witness intimidation charge, all to run concurrently, as this family somehow tries to recover from this horrific tragedy at the hands of Edson and Lasan's own mother. I think the one thing we can extrapolate from all this is that everybody in that courtroom lost. There's no witness today. detective came and knocked on the door and I said is it Renee and he just gave me that solemn look it was the worst day ever the proof podcast is back with a new case and a new season 23 years ago 18 year old Renee Ramos went missing her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town I don't think that they arrested the right people it's about time somebody's trying to do something she had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com amazing to start your springtime adventure. As a bonus for today's episode, I thought I'd include a free fireside chat I did for Patreon. This one was recorded when I was recovering from being sick. You'll have to excuse the cough drop. It's a question and answer mailbag episode, and I thought it was a lot of fun. If you enjoy what you hear and want access to the rest of the bonus content, consider joining the Patreon. Obscura is supported by listeners like you. Any help is appreciated. Listener, how you doing today? This is going to be a really off-the-cuff mailbag. I'm not going to be setting the mood. No attempt at a narration style, which I'm sure you're used to. Uh, I just want to talk straight to you and have this be 
a little bit more off the cuff than usual, right? So I'm not going to be setting the mood like I usually would with the crackling fire and my voice getting lower and everything else, you know? Um, so this time of year, I get a lot of questions and I think it's because people are at home with not a lot to do. It's snowing, maybe a little bit of a seasonal depression. I'm not sure. And, uh, speaking of seasonal, I'm coming off, uh, being sick and during this, I will be partaking in cough drops because as long as the cough drops are in, I'm not coughing. And usually, the second they go away, I'm back to coughing again. So I'm hoping I don't have chronic cough or something like that, but that's something to worry about down the line. So getting into the questions, uh, well, actually, before we even get into the questions, the first thing I want to say is don't ever trust those that speak with authority. Okay, so before I start answering these questions that people um, have felt that I'm in a position of answering, don't trust those that speak with authority. All right, so when I talk to you, I'm speaking strictly from experience and sort of the things I've learned on my 35 years on this earth. But I recognize that I'm still learning every single day. And with that, I try to only answer questions that I feel that I'm in the position that I can give some good advice on. With that said, there are a lot of people that you'll find online willing to answer every question out there and state it in this authoritative way, right? You got your Andrew Tates, you've got your Jordan Petersons, you've got your H3H3s to go to the other side of the aisle, you know? Uh, these are people that have made a career on trying to be a sort of moral and intelligent authority. And I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Keep what you like, leave what you don't. That's the way I'll put it. So with that said, my first question that I wanted to answer, someone wrote me a very descriptive and long question and even a little bit of a story about the person they're thinking about marrying. And it's actually what got me to sit down and answer these, even though I'm not completely 100% now, but this, this has a little bit of a time limit. So if you're that person and you're listening now, this is my advice to you as someone that's on their second marriage. And I wish that I would have had this advice going into my first and that's only marry the person where the math adds up. Okay. You want that person to be a, your best friend. And I don't mean that like in this simple TV kind of way, right? Like people say like, Oh, this person's my best. No, literally like they're your best friend. If you learn about something, right? You're going to tell that person without thought, you know, anything that you hear, right? The idea of not telling this person is out of the question, right? 
So that's that's the first one. Okay, they need to be your actual best friend, not the person you say that's your best friend, your actual best friend. Now, second, they can't be a project. Uh, I know that sucks to say, and it's kind of harsh, but they need to be in a place where they are not on a drain on you. They are not a drain on you. They need to be a net positive in your life. They need to make your day-to-day life better. If you come home and being around them is a subtraction, if they are bringing you down with whatever they have going on, more than they are bringing you up, that is not the person you should marry. Because... Once you are committed and there are pa- there's paperwork that binds you together, I guarantee you any of those issues, whatever they are, I'm not going to get into that, but whatever they are, it is only going to feel 10 times worse when you're stuck in the situation. No, 20 times worse, okay? And... The third thing I'm going to say, and this relates to your message, is that this is a scenario where you would be a stepfather, and you need to accept all that comes with that. And there's two sides of that. There is her side of it, where if you are going to be a stepfather, You need to be in that child's life and you need to be a father figure, right? So if you're a person that likes to drink early in the day or, you know, be high all day or any of those type of partying activities, you know, the kid you're talking about, I mean, they're, they're very young and needs to stop, you know, it's not cool to say, but it it needs to stop, you know, Uh, and that's the other thing that you have to consider as well is that on your side of it, you are going to be putting a lot of effort in and changing a lot about your life. And then if you're ever divorced, chances are all of that effort that you put in just being honest is likely not going to be rewarded. Um, The next guy in line or whatever. It's I'm just being realistic. It's something to consider. Now, I am not dissuading you as far as that goes, but you should have all chips on the table uh, before you say yes or before you decide to propose. So to finish up, they need to be a net positive. They need to be your best friend. And you need to know fully what it means to be a stepfather before you get married, right? Don't be a deadbeat. Don't be a scumbag. And also know the quant- know the consequences if you get married. And then know the consequences if you get divorced. Okay, so the next question, a little bit more lighthearted than that, is should I create a podcast? And This is my most asked question, usually. I don't know if I've answered this before. And by the way, I know I've stumbled on a few things in the last question. 
because this is truly sincerely off the cuff. So you'll have to forgive that. And I'm going to stumble again. But like I said, still getting over being sick. And uh, I hope what's here is still valuable enough. It's not an easy question to answer because it depends on your goals, right? And some people are not honest with themselves. And what do I mean by that? I think everyone who starts, you know, a true crime podcast or a podcast with their friends and they actually take the effort uh, to get the podcast logo and everything else going. I think in order to save face, they sort of tell everyone that it's just for fun and it's just for a good time. Well, in the back of their head, what they're really hoping for is their podcast to take off and it to be their line of work. And I guess what I will say is that you need to be honest with yourself. You need to tell, you know, you need to tell yourself the truth, right? Think about yourself as a friend, right? Would you want your friend to lie to you? You know? And if the answer is no, you need to be honest with yourself. And if you would like to make it a business one day, right? You need to take your decisions more seriously. You need to invest in proper equipment, although that comes later. Don't rush into that. Uh, You need to be active on social media as much as social media can suck. And first and foremost, you need to focus on the content. You need to listen to those that you are competing with. And yes, the people that are working in your space is your competition, right? You don't have to be a jerk about it, but you should recognize that they are your competition. And you should do your best to be at least as good as their content or better, right? And you have to make the moves to seem on a level playing field with them, right? Because people are quick to unsubscribe. And a lot of the times the advertisement you are going to rely on, unless you have a lot of money for advertising, is word of mouth, right? Someone hears your show. They think it's the best ever. They tell four people. That is the most important asset that you will have in your belt, right? You need those flag bearers. You need them in order to turn this into something that you can do for a living, okay? But you also need to recognize that in all likelihood, it's not going to work out. And what I did was very stupid, to be honest with you. I had saved up a lot of money for my days working as a security officer. And I took six months and I told myself that I'm either going to make it work or I'm not. And I didn't work during that period. And I focused 100% of my efforts towards making the podcast and I was working 80 hours a week and it takes that kind of commitment you know if you're going to take it seriously because let me tell you 
when I started, I would say I was in the second wave of true crime podcasters. Right. I don't even know what wave we're on now, like the 20th or something. But when I started, there was only a handful of true crime podcasters like that's it. And I recognize that's a big part of me being able to do this for nearly seven years was getting in early while the window was still open and building up a large backlog of episodes. Right. Because my podcast didn't even start taking off until there was around 32 episodes. So, you know, let's say you're making four podcast episodes a month and you need 32 episodes before people even start to take you seriously. You know, you can do the math. And then, you know, sometimes I get messages about people dabbling in other art. You know, I want to say that I think a big part of 2023 is that you need as many tools in your belt as possible to be a creative these days. Now, that's not always the case. I guess the way that I would put it is that if you are the absolute best at something, like let's say drawing, you know, you are absolutely amazing at design. You can draw photorealistic photos that are indiscernible from photographs. Yeah, you're going to have a leg up, right? You are a savant. And even then, right, I'm sure that there are people like that out there that just haven't made the right moves. Uh, So I think it's best to diversify your skill set. So with the podcast, right, like I'm the narrator, I'm the editor, I'm the writer, I handle the social media, doing all those things, right? And don't, don't get me wrong, I've experimented with writers. We, you know, we had writers for a couple seasons, but being able to do all those things, though, that's what allows me to do this for a living, right? The more, let me, let me think of a way to put this. The less tools you have, right? The less of an asset you are for any project that you work on. Okay. The less, it's the less that you are that project, right? If you only have one tool, then you're just that. You are the tool of a greater project. You want to have a, enough tools to be as much of that project as possible. And then you will find yourself in a situation where you are not replaceable. You are not simply freelance, right? You are, you are the toolbox. Okay. And so if you can't be the absolute best at something, while also being able to let people know that you're the best at something and having those tools to market that asset. And my overall advice, this goes beyond podcasting is to just get good, you know, at as many of these tools as you can, 
And there are so many resources out there now <clears throat> that with enough time, you can learn these things. Like, trust me, you can act like if I can learn these things, uh, someone who was diagnosed with ADD when they were younger, but just complete, like I've never treated it because I feel like it's it personally. And this is just me stifles my creativity. Right. Uh, use your motivation as an advantage. Fall in love with the things that you want to do. Hyperfixate on them. Hyperfixate on the various tools that you need to use. And you will give yourself the best leg up. And I know that that's not the advice that some people want to hear. And there are plenty of people out there that will suggest shortcuts. But the closest thing I've come to a shortcut is, uh, you know, purple cow marketing. It's been around forever. And that's just the last thing you need to know is to make sure you stand out. Because another thing, people didn't care as much about my podcast until I got the campfire sounds and everything else going in it made the show distinct from others. Now, since I started, there are other people that have borrowed these elements from me and, uh, I've never even got as much of a, Hey, thanks for your swag message in the DMS. And that's fine. Whatever. I don't care. Whatever butters their bread. Right. But yeah, I'll just leave it there because I can talk about this endlessly. I've, I've spoken for Patreon and Himalaya and a few other companies about it. And, uh, yeah, if, if you ever want to talk to me over the phone or something and you're working on a podcast, I'm open to that as well. So, <clears throat> I have had a few messages and questions that kind of leads me to an overall point. And uh, this is very different from the last two questions, although I think those two were different from each other as well. But I want to say this one is just sort of a blanket statement based on some of the messages I've been written. And uh, yeah, that's that's get off the Internet and have hobbies. You know, um, don't get me wrong. I have been raised on the Internet since I was in fourth or fifth grade. You know, I've been extremely online for much of my life. And it took me about three years ago and <clears throat> finding my current wife, who I'm deeply in love with, <clears throat> to kind of take stock and realize how unfulfilling the internet can be to your life. And there is so much value in having real tangible hobbies. Now I mentioned before in a previous one that I enjoy shortwave radio. That's, that's an example of a tangible hobby. I'm going to throw in a cough drop, sorry. And 
what that does is that leads me to situations where I'm going outside and I'm going to parks and I'm going to rivers and I'm, I'm trying different things, right. To get signals uh, from around the world. And it's not, it's not about the hobby itself. It's about what it's motivating me to do. Right. Because how many of you can relate to this, right? You take a seat on the couch, you take a seat in your favorite chair, you lay down in bed, you pull out your phone, and you start browsing Twitter, and you start browsing Facebook, and you start browsing, uh, you know, Reddit or whatever forums or websites you're into. What seems like 10, 15 minutes go by, you look at the clock and it's been an hour and a half. That's okay. You know, that's fine. Right. Some it's, it's good to have times in the day where you turn your brain off. Right. And you just sort of submit to it. And I, I, it's its own form of meditation at times. Right. Like that's okay. I'm not disparaging it, but for those of us that have spent a lot of our life online, you will find that that time spent, you know, on your phone, on your computer, on your tablet, it increases and increases. And once it gets to a certain point, it's sort of all consuming, you know, flicking through TikToks and Instagram reels. And you should recognize it for what it is. It is wasted time, you know, because in your brain, you're sort of simulating the feeling of being a part of things, right? Through influencers and posts and everything that are presenting these scenarios to your brain and you're getting these small dopamine hit, hits, you know, but you're not participating in them. And well, you may not stop and really think about the difference in that your brain recognizes it and your mental health recognizes it. And when you can be out and participating in the real world and being a part of it and just slowing down, right? Like going to the library and getting a hold of some physical books or even just putting some books on a Kindle. And going and sitting at a park bench underneath the sun, right? You do that for a few hours, you're getting that vitamin D. When you get home and you finally do sit down to be on your phone, I'm telling you, you will feel a sense of accomplishment, right? Even just for something as simple as that, you will feel happy with yourself for taking that extra effort, in doing something that isn't just the standard, oh, I'm going to laze around the house <clears throat> and I'm going to exist on the internet, right? And I think it's because your body craves that sort of movement and that sort of interaction. And for those of you that work from home, right? It's even even simple things around the house. And I... <laughs> I know, I know, but l listen, 
daily chores even right taking making take, making sure the garbage is out every single day and cleaning your windows and you know making your bed like these simple things that have sort of like gone out of style and gone out of fashion can greatly improve your life in small ways right it will make you a more attentive person it will make you a happier person it will make you a goal oriented person you keep up this type of behavior hobbies that take you out of your apartment out of your house into the world, you will be a better person for it because, and this is wrapping around to how I got to this question. I get a lot of messages from listeners who say, you know, as I get older, right, I don't have any friends, you know, they've started their own families and they're doing their own things. And I'm more of a, stay-at-home person, and I spend most of my time indoors. And, yeah, you know, I think part of it is that school forced you to interact, right? You had your parent getting on you about getting to school, and, of course, there are laws forcing you to do it, and school forced you to sort of interact in these ways and making yourself uncomfortable, right? But now there are so many jobs and everything that are more isolating. And you can submit to that isolation. And it's not good for you. It's just not. Being too alone with yourself, right, Sometimes you need someone to be like, hey, cut it out. You need that peer pressure, you know. And look, I'm sure that there's a percentage of people, right, stoic loners that do 100% fine. But in my experience, those type of guys, even though they are sort of loners, they're still like hikers or farmhands and they're, they're keeping themselves active, right? They're not sat on the couch binge watching Friends for the fifth time, you know, binge watching Seinfeld and The Office for the third time. You know, they're out there and they're getting their hands dirty and they're getting that earned dopamine, right? Not simulated through your phone through a way that actually rewards you as a person in terms of growth. But yeah, so consider that sort of a blanket uh, answer to a large quantity of questions that, even if they didn't realize it, were asking the same way, are asking the same thing in different ways. Yeah, get off the internet, uh, have hobbies, get more active, whatever that means to you. But... I'm looking at the uh, timer here and uh, I've almost pushed this to 30 minutes. So I want to wrap this up. If you made it this far, thank you for taking the time to listen. Uh, You know, me sitting here sucking on cough drops. 
<clears throat> I got through three of them. <clears throat> I appreciate it. Um, I am currently furiously working on episodes. And uh, I can't wait to get those to you. Thank you for supporting me. It genuinely means the world to me. It's how I live. You know, it's uh, how I pay the bills. And I could not be more thankful to you for that. Um, but yeah, I think that wraps up. Have a great day or evening, depending on if you're listening to this. If you're sleeping, I hope you wake up rested. <laughs> I know some of you sleep to my episodes. That's cool. But yeah, thank you for listening and keep the fire burning.